Welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today, I have got a lovely, lovely, lovely guest, Nathanie Eftinov. Nathanie is a woman who describes to me that AA has rescued her life, has given her new purpose, and it's beautiful to hear that. It's also intriguing because uh, Nathanie is not really an alcoholic. Nathanie is not really uh, a, a victim to this insidious, potentially life-threatening chronic disease that many of us have. And here we are, most of us are saying, no, I have no problem. No, 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 no. This, you know, there's so many good reasons why I drink. Yeah, it's just, I am not an alcoholic. So that's the classic symptom of denial. 95% of alcoholics believe there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. Having said that, um, in Nathanie's case, actually, <laughs> it is actually true. <laughs> Yet, here you are, Nathanie, um, saying how beautiful AA was for you. And therefore, I thought I'd bring you onto this show and actually talk about uh, that the fact that AA has so much more to offer as a structured approach to life and as a structured approach how to deal with the many, many, many bad things that happen to most of us. And so, yeah, Nathan, I'm so, so pleased to have you on my show. Welcome. Well, thank you, Stefan. I'm very delighted that you could have me on your show. I'm really excited to be here. And uh, yes, I have been, well, I, I should start by saying I am not an alcoholic. When I was introduced to AA, I was really angry. However, I was told, just have an open mind and go to the meetings and see what happens. And so with mixed emotions of the questions. I don't understand why they're sending me to that place because I'm not a drug user. I'm not an alcoholic. I couldn't see the benefits in Alcoholics Anonymous. However, as the compliance person that I am, I followed instructions. I kept an open mind and I repeatedly attended the meetings I did up to step five, went to the experience and all. And I want you to know that the things I learned during the meetings, it was mind blowing. We always think that, you know, these places, places where alcoholics hang out or bad people hang out, persons who are good, shouldn't go there, right? And so <laughs> I know, I just knew if I had authority figures in my life, if I had informed them prior to going, they would have been ranting and raving with me because that's a bad place. That's where bad people are. And so I shouldn't be in that environment. However, I went and true. Some people, the things that they've done, they were really ugly things. They were really 
dangerous things that they did, bad things to loved ones. However, that's where I found healing. That's where I found forgiveness. I felt like after the experience, I felt like a weight had come off my shoulder. I want to let you know that during the meetings that I used to be going to, the first time, the first few times I went, I, I became enlightened. My eyes were open because we are church going, we were church going people. And normally church going people, they're judgmental. They look down on people who are doing stuff that the Bible condemns. And so to discover persons at the meetings, when they shared, they were sharing experiences that I had and we had never met before. The ranting and ravings of a parent when nothing, nothing was so grave that they should go ranting and raving. When I, when I heard, when I sat in the meeting and I heard persons sharing and sharing of, you know, this uncontrollable ranting and ravings that their loved ones would be doing, it opened my, my eyes. I'm like, this has happened to me. This has been happening to me. And I just can't live in denial anymore that we are these lovely, happy church-going people. We have alcoholism in our family. Mm -hmm. My eyes were opened about the realities. It was a sobering reality for me that I had alcoholism in my family. And I'd sneak in with my father, but then I had I was living with a brother then, and he went out to a work function, and because he wasn't getting a raise, he became drunken, went into that stupor, and just, you know, got so angry, lashing out at his boss. And I was like, if someone had to tell me that I had alcoholism in my family, I would have denied it. But there I was at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and discovering really what was causing me the pain in my life. Why all the work, the hard work I had put in, why I had lost all my, my um, accomplishments because of the persons I was who, was, who were around me and who were not supportive of me, but they were involved in alcoholic, um, they were involved as an alcoholic. So there I was, going through that pain, dealing with the things that impact COAs, which is, which is um, which the abbreviation is the children of alcoholics. And isn't it amazing? Uh, sorry, uh, Nathanie, I stopped for a moment. My, you saw my, my thing has just cut out. Um, so, which is so mean because I had a problem with my phone. It just didn't want to play anymore. So I had to restart it. And so it looks really stupid on my side. Do you think we can take it back a moment? Okay, Do you think so we can start over? Um, start over where, when I started, could, could you remember when, when my face became yeah, I remember, but I can't remember exactly what I was saying then. Yeah, that's right. So that over sharing. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Stephen. Sorry, it's just one second. Just one second. Thank you, Stephen.
I'm very excited to be here and I'm really excited you've invited me to be on your podcast today, The Steps to Sobriety. It is an absolute honor to have you on because you are an amazing woman who has gone through so much in your life and you ended up being in this position that you uh, describe the AAs, Alcoholics Anonymous, as a, as a lifesaver. And yes. that's an intriguing thing, isn't it? Because they are lifesavers for alcoholics and for narcotics anonymous, for many other problems. But here you are, by all definition, you're not an alcoholic. You're no, not I'm a not. drug user. <laughs> but yet you ended up in <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous and you describe how beneficial and how beautiful they were to you. And that's the most intriguing thing, keeping in mind that 95% of alcoholics, of, this, this, of us, we deny that we are in any trouble. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm absolutely fine. I'm, I'm, uh, I just drink a little bit too much. Alcoholic, no. He is an alcoholic over there. Me, no way. So the denial is part of our disease. But for you, you truly are not an alcoholic yet. Tell me, why did AA make such a huge difference to you? Why did it, uh, did it change your life? How did that come about? I want to start by saying that I was very angry when I was told that I should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was placed on this call and I thought one person would help me and I'd get off the call, but I was placed through a, like I was given the rigmarole. This person sent me to that person, sent me to that person before they broke the news to me that they were sending me to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. So I was very upset because I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not involved in drug use. So I was very upset when I called the um, person who had referred me to make that phone call. He said to me, can you just keep an open mind? And I bit my lip. I said nothing because I really didn't have a choice. I didn't have the, I didn't have any options. I was working at just saving my life. That's all I had, my life. And I was just going to work at taking whatever was available to help me save my life to make it happen. And so I went, the first meeting I went to, I discovered from someone sharing that although we had never met before, what they, were, what they had experienced and spoken about were things that I was experiencing. The rantings, uncalled for rantings and ravings by loved ones. I'm like, oh my goodness, I have that as part of my experience. Well, this person, it doesn't take much for him to just leap up. You don't just go into this outrageous outburst and rant and rave when it wasn't called for. And I, I actually shed a lot of tears during those first few meetings that I went to because all the things that had been buried, very deep within me that I hadn't, I, had, I didn't believe that I would recall those things. 
But being in those meetings, hearing the other people share about their pain, something clicked in my head and made me realize I've had those experiences. And I was just so dumbfounded because if I had to tell any authority figure in my life, including the person who would go into this outrageous uncalled for rants and raves, if I had to tell him that I was going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, <laughs> all hell would have broken loose and he would have said, that's not a place you should be. I mean, a lot of my loved ones, if I had to tell him that's where I was going, they would have condemned, yeah, they would have condemned me being in that environment. <laughs> and I'm not saying that there, it's not true that people there have done things that are not right, but the truth is that, yeah, they are, the, the, the um, meetings, the tools that are provided, they help you as a person suffering. So true. To, so, to um, navigate through, you know, with that. And so. I think it's so beautiful for me as an alcoholic to actually hear the stories of others, of people who I look at and think, what, you? Really? Um, and it's, it's, it amazed me because we, alcoholism transcends all strata of our society. It doesn't matter which color you are. It doesn't matter which, which background you have got. It gets everyone from judges and leaders down to simple yeah. workers because we are all struggling with the same things. We're yeah. all struggling with pains and, and disappointments and trauma and all the negative emotions that, uh, that torment us. And we have not developed the coping mechanisms. Yeah. Some of us, therefore... We end up with alcohol and or other ways of numbing ourselves. And I guess maybe to a certain degree, we are the lucky ones because you can only do so much bad things to your body and to, to society, etc., before someone takes notice and says, well, actually, come on, why don't you go to a meeting? And then a meeting is one way. So the AA is, is a very established root of you addressing problems in your life and starting to work with systems, learn skills, get an expertise so that you do no longer need to rely on the alcohol or on drugs, but that you get on with life and develop a life so beautiful that, that you really truly can't wait to get out of bed because you want to live this life. Yes, so this is... That's really what AA is all about. So the alcohol is really only just, for me, a marker of something else happening in a life where you really realize, oh boy, um, this is, these are, these are, uh, there's a lot of crap going on in a person's life. You just have to say, oh boy, this is, this is so important to address the underlying problems and that is exactly what AA allowed you to do. That's correct because as I continued to go to meetings I was told 
it's not I should actually focus on whatever my pain was. Mm. I was told that I could um anybody dealing with any situation situation can take away, mm. remove alcohol and put whatever the situation is that mm. would that out the alcoholics go for the treatment for. Mm. So I've had to do that. Absolutely. I grew up in a home where there was a lot of domestic violence and it was constantly walking on pins and needles. Mm. One minute, everything would be nice and dandy and another minute, we were very, I was walking around in shock having experienced, mm. you know, seeing my mother swollen mm. and mm. black, blue and purple with black eyes. And so it was one minute we were happy and another minute we were, you know, it was just like I was walking on a cloud floating because I, I couldn't actually make sense mm. of what was happening in my life. And when people tell me, well, I have to drink to relax. Oh, I have to drink because it makes me feel cool. Oh, I have to drink because I'm stressed. I'm like, oh, you think I'm not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they tell me they're bored. I'm like, oh, you think I'm not? So mm. I... I'm not, well, maybe I don't focus on being bored, but I've, I've learned to work at saving this precious gift that was given to me, which was life. And to do stuff to harm myself, which I had tried to do once, and it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't part of the plan. So I've just spent my lifetime working at saving this precious gift and I was, I am very grateful that Alcoholics Anonymous was given to me because it has helped me to save my life, to maintain my sanity. It had put me on a path. It was actually the beginning of a path where I would have been going to these anonymous meetings. So it didn't matter which meeting I went to. I went from Alcoholics Anonymous to Al-Anon, to Codependency Anonymous, to Narcotics Anonymous, and the stories that I, that I experienced, it's like they moved me to tears. They had me asking, why am I sitting in this room? And it just blew me away because I had done all the preparation for life that I didn't have to be. I felt like I was wasting my time going to those meetings. But at the end of the day, I was really saving my life because... I was realizing that the, um, the lack of sobriety in my background with my family members was causing me the, it was causing me to lose my mind. I was very I was, it was a shot, a shot, like you know, a blink of losing my mind, but somehow, with the tools that I received from going to those meetings, helped me to, to maintain my sanity and help me to see life with different, with different lens. Indeed, indeed, Ra. Yeah. And if, for those of you guys who are now watching this video and have not really got an understanding about Alcoholics Anonymous and, and the 12 steps, etc., there are, in a nutshell, it is a very simple system. And the first three steps are really about you coming to terms with the fact that you have got a problem and accepting that there is actually help out there and that you're that you're willing to seek that help and then the next uh, steps 
are of paramount importance because that's when you actually do an inventory of your own life where you look really deep into your soul and try to figure out what is really going on. So you start to make lists of resentments, of fears, of your core beliefs, of many other things. And that is uh, a, a, it can be a rabbit hole because many of our lives are not beautiful. They are nothing like the Facebook uh, persona oh, that you yes. try to to portray uh, it's not like the, the 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 picture perfect person that goes to the church and prays in in front of the other churchgoers to show how beautiful we are uh, and in reality at home domestic violence is is putting lives at risk so no it is you are learning to look deeply, deeply into your soul and are starting to work with the problems. You're starting to learn ways how to change things, or you learn ways to come to terms with what has happened. There might not be anything you can do about what has happened to you in your youth, but you can come to terms with it and you can move on. And many people, have not been able to achieve that. And it's that is what the work really entails. So going to meetings is all quite nice, but it is AA is, is a system that allows you to deal with your own problems and develop the skills that you need to survive in this world. And that is where then a mentor comes in or a sponsor comes in. Uh, these are then, then people who have been themselves to psychologists and psychiatrists, and they might open the door for you because they say, wow, I recognize myself in you, man, you have got so much anger there. And that, that anger is quite understandable with what you have gone through. And you actually have got PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder from what happened to you in the past. Yeah. And so maybe maybe there is this guy, there is this psychologist who, who is a specialist in that. Why don't you go and see him? And prior to that meeting, you had no idea that A, you maybe have PTSD, B, that there is help out there, and C, by the way, here's the phone number. And you know that is what meetings are all about. So it is building a community of people who, where you strip away the masks and they are anonymous. Yeah. So you're not saying, hi, I'm Stefan Neff. I'm a consultant anesthetist. I work there. You're saying, hi, I'm Stefan. I'm an alcoholic. Full stop. Mm -hmm. They don't know what I do unless you live in a small town and they know you. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you can do uh, Zoom meetings nowadays with AA meetings around the world. You want to join an AA meeting somewhere in Europe? You go for it. Eh? So, and that's the nice thing. You can be COVID, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can be truly, truly, truly yeah. anonymous. Yeah. But it is about the stories. It is about the listening. You shutting up and listening to the stories of others, where you suddenly realize, wow, okay, he has actually gone through exactly the same shit as I have. I'm actually not alone. I'm actually not 
not the only one. And especially with domestic violence, Nathanie, you you had you had a a very dark story that we don't need to go into all the details, but needless to say, your life was at many times not very, very nice. And there is all this frustration. There is all this 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 emptiness, this anger, this 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 all this this ah uh, why me, why me, why me? And it's quite quite intriguing. There's some intriguing things. For example, I'm intrigued that you did not drink. I'm intrigued that you did not use drugs to numb yourself. You had all the excuses to do so. So it's actually quite amazing and beautiful that you didn't. Uh, well, Stefan, can I say something right yeah. here? It's like I, I, I was very burdened with adult responsibilities as a girl. <laughs> True. So having those responsibilities, which I was very devoted to, it's like it gave me a false sense of who I was. That's another story for another time. However, I was very, very happy undertaking the responsibilities of caring for younger siblings. As I should, um, as I shared with you, when my baby brother was born on a weekly basis, okay, I was in the third, the third um, class. It was my third year in high school and I had on a weekly basis, I took these athletics trainings, which prepared the athletes for regional and national competitions. And my coach was preparing me for that. And so when my baby brother was born, I couldn't, as much as I enjoyed athletics, doing track and field, throwing the shot put, throwing the discus, long jump and high jump, or as much as I enjoyed competing to improve my skills in those different um, disciplines, I had to give that all up. And my, my coach was so disappointed in me. He said, if you don't come back to athletics meeting this week, I'm going to give you a detention. Well, I don't want a detention, so I'm crying my eyeballs out. Oh. <laughs> Not realizing that I'm going to lose something. I'm going to my mother to tell her, he said he's going to give me a detention if, I, you, if, if you don't allow me to come back to um, athletics meetings. And she wrote him a letter. They used to be classmates growing up. She wrote him a letter, and he knows my mother. He just took the letter, read it, and he smiled, and he said nothing. But I didn't know what I had lost because I was very passionate as an athlete. And with the birth of that child, not my child, but I had to undertake those responsibilities for this little life, for the few little lives I was responsible to, helping maintain balance in the family because our dad was absentee, an absentee dad, and my mom, she had to work to keep a roof over our head and food on the table. So I, I was just so passionate about so, being supportive and creating balance and being there for her, being her right-hand person, that it didn't, it didn't impact me that I should, you know, relaxed with a drink. In fact, at the age of five years old, I would be given the drink punchy Cuba in a cup with a block of ice. This took forever to melt. The, the block of ice took forever to melt. 
culture Cuba is a very thick drink. It's, it contains eggs and milk, but it also contains 75% alcohol. And so after constantly having a, a block of ice in a thick drink or as delicious as it was, I decided I don't want this drink anymore. And as a girl, I was like 13 years when I would be drinking wine, when I would be out with a cousin. And one day she, she said, you go to church, why are you drinking? <laughs> why are you drinking wine? And so I just got to the point where I just gave up those things because sometimes when I would taste certain wine, people figure that they got to enjoy it. didn't even, I'm like, how do you all drink this? There's this bitter taste in the cup. Yes, it makes the cup red and make it look like it's delicious, but how do people drink this thing? And I just point out in the thing, and I'm like, yeah, alcohol really didn't, it, it really didn't bring me any, you know, any yes. eagerness yeah. to, to celebrate it or to enjoy it like I see people do. But I had these little lives I had to be supportive of, and I just was so passionate about giving myself to them in that manner that I just didn't choose alcohol as a way to cope. It's beautiful. It is, uh, that was probably in its own right, a big lifesaver for you that, that you had this, this uh, recognition or this insight or this development. Ah, oh, dear me. If you were able to go back to your younger self, if you had a time machine, what would you tell your younger self? Wow. Wow. As I shared with you a while ago, I cared passionately for my loved ones. And I can also share a story, if you don't mind, if we have time. I can also share a story where after constantly hearing my mother constantly say, this is my house. If you don't abide by my rules, you can hit the streets. Sometimes I didn't even think I'd done anything. But some people, it's like, no matter what you do, they always find the fault. And that's what they can see only with the fault. And so I worked hard, really hard for love, for acceptance, to feel that I belonged. And there was always this underlying feeling that I, I, I didn't belong. And as I had been through a lot of stuff and I look back, I couldn't feel the love. However, when my mother, when I was just tired of walking on pins and needles and being mistreated, I, I just had had it. A stranger was in our home visiting and he saw the mistreatment that I endured and he said, you're going to come with me. And I went with him. It was my boyfriend. I went with him. It was my boyfriend for all the wrong reasons because I just didn't have an outlet. I just didn't have anyone to turn to. And I went with him and I vowed I'd never return home. But three years later, my mother, she called me. I was back in my country living and my mother said, I need to have a meeting with you. When can you make some time to drop by the house? I made some time and I did drop by the house. And when I entered the door and I sat down, I looked up in the ceiling and what was supposed to be ceiling, there was an opening like I could see the clouds rolling by over our heads. When I looked to the side, what was supposed to be the secure wall, there was, there was an opening in the wall that I could see the neighbors walking in their yard. That was a wooden structure. The flooring, it was busted open as well from the weather, weathering the elements. I could see dirt beneath the floor. 
in the opening, I could see grass growing up. And I was like, I was so moved. I'm like, I'm living in a secure place and there's my family living under these conditions. And when my mother told me she needed my help to help her build that house, I said, yes, I'll do it without a second thought. She, as she told me that the loan was going to be in my name. I said, yes, I will do it because she was too old to take a loan to build the house and undertake the project on her own. Mm. It became my project because her working hours conflicted with the time that the contractors were there. So I'd come from work where I worked with the government and I left work eight to four. I came, I got home from like 5.30 and from 5.30 to 10, that was another job for me, mm. preparing a meal for my younger siblings and a meal so that my mom would have when she's home from work she could have. And the meal would also serve the contractors who were doing the um, building. Mm. I also feed and keep my younger siblings clean and make sure homeworks were done and were ready for bed so we could go through the next day living our lives as if it was normal. But we lived in a hut on the side of the house that was being built. And so we tried to be comfortable in there. And I tried to keep it clean and make it feel homey. But when the rain fell, the water drainage just came through the floor. So the only comfortable place that we had was on our bed sometimes because the flooring would be, it would be really cold in there from all the water that would, from the um, community that would go through there. And so that was the way we lived until the housing project was completed. And after the housing project was completed, within a year, I was thinking my mom would be happy and she'd have no reason to be frustrated as she was. But unfortunately, she was so bitter, so angry. I'm like, okay, you couldn't build this house. I built it for you. I took the loan in my name and you're still being unpleasant. And I actually forgot you were that way. And I'm seeing things, you know, I'm seeing you portraying things that, oh my goodness, I had forgotten about. And so I had to leave. I couldn't. It, it was a lot of shame for me. I left with the help of a stranger and I went to further my education. And while away, I'm reaching out to this youngest, young, the youngest sibling who I raised from infancy. And whenever I would call, all I would hear is he's sleeping, he's in his bed. And she would not even ask me, how are you doing anything like this? She would just say, he's sleeping, he's in his bed. And that's youngest sibling. When I wasn't supported after I graduated college with honors, match, by the way, <laughs> when I graduated college and I, I was losing everything because my dad wasn't supportive of me continuing my values for advancing myself, his, his um, wish for me was that I returned and continued caring for the family, which I had left behind. And so my achievements were sabotaged. And I lost everything. And that sibling, which I raised from infancy, was the person who was sent to take care of me so that I'd not be homeless and on the street. Well, 
it so happened that when there became the time that he wanted me out, he found a way with my family members, they found a way to get rid of me. And that led to my homelessness. And I was very angry for a while, very angry, because I was in this person's life from the, before they were even born. And there he was. He, I cared for him for 14 years. He only cared for me for seven years, and he was tired of me. I felt like, you know, I was some dirty, some dirty water that they were just throwing away, some trash they were just getting rid of. And so I was assaulted physically. He brought in someone to live in the home we shared. And in a month of the person living there, she jumped up in my face telling me she was going to beat me down and we should take the fight outside. And within three months of her being there, yes, she actually made that happen. She, she jumped on me, choking me. And it was when she did let, release me, she continued to beat on me. Also, it also actually dragged on, dragged on throughout the night that my brother got involved and he also ended up choking me. So when I think of that, I called the cops like three times. It took them like a whole, what seemed like an hour for them to get there. And by then so much more had happened, like me getting choked a second time. And so when I look back, if I have to give what, would, what I'd say to my younger self, I would say to my younger self, I'm very proud of you. However, there are some things you need to know when to close the doors on. I didn't know when to close the door. My mother would always say, we're all we've got, stick together. And another thing she would also say that would kind of put me through guilt is when you all do better for yourselves, you all leave and you all don't turn back. And I wanted to prove to her that I'm not that type of person. So since I had invested so much in my youngest brother, I wanted to keep him in my life. I wanted to be in his life to continue to impact his life. And little did I know when I had this silence, when I'd be reaching out to him and all I would be getting was silence from him, hostility from other family members. And my mom saying, well, he's in his bed. Little did I know his mind was being poisoned against me. If I could go back and tell my younger self anything, I would tell my younger self when a door is closed, when distance has been created between you and someone you were very tight with, you're going to have to recognize that distance and honor it. Be grateful for whatever you all had shared before, but there has to be a reason for silence and distance. And I would tell myself, honor that and move on. Do not try to restore what was lost. I know life is about redemption. It's about redemption a lot for me, but I wasn't aware my family were dangerous people and they would have endangered my life. And there I was staying open to maintain relationships that were jeopardizing my safety, trying to destroy the hard work and the achievements that I had. I had actually spent my life doing because I raised a child that wasn't mine. Totally lost. When he assaulted me, there's no way we could have 
we can ever restore that relationship. The constant instigation from my parents to him to, to mistreat me, to, to do things that she would not condone me doing a senior person when I was younger. No, when that door closes and, they ex and one experiences silence and distance, and the relationship changes, I would tell my younger self, move on. Don't look back or love at a distance. Because you, you're not, oh, you don't know what you, I'll tell my younger self, you don't know what you're opening yourself up to going back. And that's what you see in many toxic relationships. That's what you see in many, many narcissistic people who then, manage to put the guilt onto you and sometimes you you don't need narcissistic people to do that for you you do it yourself because you have got this expectation hang on here i am i'm a good person as part of me being a good person of course i'm supposed to be a good son a good uh, daughter a good sister whatsoever and you have got these high expectations that you want to live up to and it is very 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 hard to deal with that when you let yourself down, in quotation marks, because you have, you are not being the good son that you want to be, or the, the good daughter, the good sister, and it's it's hard. I I certainly I understand that guilt, I understand that shame. I have gone through that myself, but it is how many times do you let another person hurt you? before you actually draw a line in the sand. And that's where the codependency uh, is, is coming in. And that's where, where people who look after loved ones that are addicts, that where they learn to stand on their own feet, learn how to love themselves and therefore be such a better person to actually uh, look after after the person who is in trouble so but it is you need to develop the insight that sometimes enough is enough and that you need to come first there's a lovely saying your rights stop at the end of my nose and i don't know where where this comes from i think it's a polish saying translated but i like it a lot because it is really, um, there's only so much you can, you can accept of, of devilish behavior. That is correct. Mm. And if someone were to tell me, oh, your loved one would have done that to you, I'd have punched them out. I'm like, no. <laughs> mm. But my loved one, and I think it was brought to my attention, but I was, I was like, oh, you all just need to give people a chance. You all just like to give people, you know, the, the dirt. So give mm. the person chance and let me do my part to help them in their life mm. and I just saw that okay people started looking at me differently because I, I did something like build a house mm. build a house and mm. I'm thinking I would tell my child I'm proud of you I, I can tell I can't tell a day when I heard my mother say I'm proud of you it's <laughs> beautiful. You know? beautiful so I have to be proud of of myself for me because I'm there being her friend when she didn't have friends, being her right hand and her support 
but she didn't have friends. Well, my dad was gone. It was just us and the kids. And I'd have had someone who'd been there for me like this on a pedestal. I couldn't get that from her, but that's okay. I can tell my, my younger self, you're all right. You are all right. And you can move on. And you don't have to have any regrets. I have no regrets for all that I've done to help. Because growing up, I was taken into the community and I helped as a little girl. And I just saw such beauty in doing community work. So my family was my community work. And when they were no longer in my life, I found I was actually out there helping persons who were homeless after church. I had a very hectic schedule. It was work, work, church, help the homeless, work, church, <laughs> help the homeless. It was like, go do my groceries. I just had this um, this strict schedule. I didn't have a social life. It was just so like, so I couldn't find, I couldn't continue working to help them, but I found persons in my community who needed my help and I curated that as a course and I kept supporting and I believe all that helped help me maintain my sanity because there's something that is so true when you're hurting don't focus don't focus on your pain focus on someone else's how you can help them and there I was living at a shelter I saw this I went to this church and I saw that they were doing this um event for persons who were in sex trafficking to have them come out of that lifestyle and be into back into functional society and I, I signed up. And after signing up, I said, oh my goodness, I'm going to remove my name from the list because I'm feeling really down today. I really don't want to be up in people's faces. I just want to sleep. I just want to hide. And I was working with a therapist at that time. And she said to me, you're going to go. You're not going to take your name off that list. Don't think you're going to flake. You're going to participate. You're going to make your contribution and help the cause that you signed up for initially. And I want to tell you that began for me a four-year period where every year I went and I made this contribution to help persons who were involved in sex trafficking and needed the life skills to rebuild their lives. So I did that for four years. And during those four years, I got all the events that people needed clothing, professional attire. Mm. And so we did an event for that. And another one was for a homeless, building a homeless community. And so we did a, another event for that. And I got involved in all these activities when something really bad had happened to me and I should have really been, you know, <laughs> balling my eyes out and hiding. It just opened me up to making my contribution and furthering the cause to help people, you know, improve their, the way they live. I'm very passionate about that. Which is beautiful, beautiful. But of course, you could also look at it as a way of escaping, as a Absolutely. way of not addressing the issues that come up in your own life and Absolutely. a way of, of, yeah, escaping, I guess is the word. <laughs> I actually can, I can agree to that because I grew up very burdened with those responsibilities and that's where I used music to, I used music to escape. I would sing for church events. I could, I would stand on the table when my mom wasn't there with a brush or a bottle. My 
Challenge brother was my biggest fan and he was cheering me on. <laughs> and I would actually escape. He would be cheering me on, but I'd hear crowds of people cheering me on. I would actually escape in my mind using music and art. Yeah. To just, no. you know, not feel the pain or just not feel the frustration of all that I had doing. Yeah. And is there something wrong with that? No. No, no, no on the contrary. You need, you need to find outlets that allow you to deal with the pain, wherever this pain is coming from. But, I mean, as with, with everything, uh, from a doctor's point of view, if there is a abscess in, on, on your skin, if there is a collection of pus, if there is a rotten tooth, you're better off, actually, of cutting that pus out, oh, yeah. of pulling that tooth. But sometimes, sometimes you can't. Sometimes the, the cause of the pain, you can't do anything about it. And then you need to figure out, well, how do you deal with this pain? And if it is through service, through helping others, to being there for people who are in an even worse situation than you are, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I think the, the fear and my concerns with that is, is if you look at, at uh, many comedians who are making other people laugh whilst deep inside, they are slowly dying and are in a, in a very poor mental state. I think that is unfortunately a reality for many people out there. So it is... Uh, don't just focus on others only to neglect yourself. I think that is that is my fear when I hear stories such as yours. Well, I'm very grateful. I really am because there was a time I had stopped singing. I am telling you, I really was passionate about singing because I grew up as a girl singing in church. And when I got to a point where I was in high school, I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. I want uh -huh. to sing at concerts. And I was discouraged from doing so because we didn't have the population that would support me to help me have a full audience. Aww. And so, yes, I had to give that up. So I worked in all different types of jobs, trained in all sorts of stuff. And even when I trained them, I was completing my training as a dental assistant. I had done a video for my reception where I was singing and my instructor looked over the shoulder of the other instructor I shared the tape with and she's like, what? Wrong field. You're in the wrong field. Uh, 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 so I was uh, just teaching my requirements as a dental assistant and here's my instructor telling me I'm in the wrong field. But I had been involved in different groups and choirs all my yeah. life and being a soloist all my life. I was passionate about this thing. And so I really got a relief. I got, it wasn't an escape for me. It's my passion. And so, yeah, I sing and people cry. They, got, they get goosebumps. <laughs> I feel better afterwards. And I, I, I actually used to be, I, I had been a poet at one time. I stopped. And then at a very low point in my life, I was, I was invited to be in this training it was creative writing, and the graduation was 
presenting the poem that I wrote. One of the pieces that I wrote during that training, we had all these different um, practitioners from the film industry come and work with us so we could be looking, you know, like entertainers. <laughs> it was wonderful. Beautiful. And if, yeah, and if you give me the opportunity today, I will be willing to share one of my pieces with you. I would be utterly humbled. Uh, please go for it. Are you, are you happy to do it now? Absolutely. Go for okay. it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Stefan. Make much of your life. Make much of your life, I was constantly told. I heard it so frequently. It had gotten old. Even if it seemed I wasn't paying any attention, silently, I was sold. I made much of my life exercising extreme caution. As I carried the weight of the wound on my shoulders, I struck hard for perfection so I'd not commit any blunders. Like a beat of the drum, Passion rang out with my every heartbeat. Drive oozed out my pores. Had the foggiest idea how I'd find open doors. As I scared a few feet from the intensity of my momentum, the people who told me make much of my life, I had no idea they couldn't handle my outcome. I reached out to them so together we'd celebrate. How they reacted, I could hardly relate. They tell me make much of my life, but deep in their hearts, they wish I'd not go in full throttle. They weren't brave enough to give themselves a chance and now, they can't bear to see me hating various attitudes like a shuttle. They tell me make much of my life and when I did, not even with a bit of their acknowledgement, I was rewarded. And while they're not talking money here, I know this is something they could have afforded. But wait, was this a test of my ambition or some kind of ammunition used to derail me from bringing my goals to fruition? Huh? 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 I took up the charge. I made much of my life. And my life works proves nothing less. Must I repeat? I took up the charge. I made much of my life. And my life works proves nothing less. So why they be giving me grief on my journey when they're the ones who instilled in me to do things wholeheartedly? Huh? 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 I made much of my life when I found my life's purpose through the steep of my struggle. And so when disappointed, I refuse to crumble. I take on my pain raw, avoid the deviance, drink drugs, 
I'm successful in bigger things. I'm better off living for. I made much of my life when I found my life's purpose through the skip of my struggle. And so when disappointed, I refuse to crumble. I take on my pain rock, avoid deviance, drink drugs, and focus on bigger things. I'm better off living for. I focus on bigger things. I'm better off living for. I focus on bigger things. I'm better off living for. I focus on bigger things. I'm better off living for. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, beautiful. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh, please. It is so you, isn't it? It is Thank so you. Des it's describing your struggle. And here you are, guys. You heard it first on My Steps to Sobriety. Okay. Yeah. What shall I say? What shall I say? Here. Here it is. Nathanie, it was so beautiful to talk to you. And and it's it our interview shows that that we all go through so much trouble in our lives. Some of us have got the checkpot when it comes to bad things happening to them. But if you keep your eyes open, then salvation and help might yeah. come from areas which you least expected to come it's from. Least expect. yeah. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank yeah. you so much Absolutely. for having me on your show. <laughs> as, my, as I leave out, I just want to share with your audience, be constructive in your life for your life avoid the temptation to be destructive be alcohol i know you wanted to soothe the pain but so so can music so can writing so can poetry so can playing a new a, a musical instrument it can help these things can help soothe your pain and help you to feel proud of yourself have an accomplishment so avoid thinking oh the only thing i can do is a drink or a cig or you know mm. one so, drop or another so true for this life we got to make it beautiful because someone out there needs to see our light shining or see us on fire burning so they can come and watch us do our thing so get in so you can Burn so others can <laughs> join in. Nathan, keep that flame going, yes. Hell yes. And <laughs> and here you are. That is the 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 passion that shines through you. Oh, it's beautiful. It was it was very humbling to have you on my show. Nathanie, I uh, wish you all the best for the future. Let this light shine. Shine this light and attract all those people around you who deserve to be in your life, who, whose light can make you smile and where you draw the line in the sand and say, this has happened in the past, but yeah. now I live my life. I, uh, I have learned the lessons and you are now giving back. You are now sharing your story, a very intimate story, a very painful story. But by you sharing, you are giving power to people. You are, you're making lives better. 
And for that, I commend you. For that, I'm grateful to you. And if we can just break down more barriers and talk about the taboos, talk about the dark things in our lives and make it known that you are not alone, you viewers, because you, you, you listened into that podcast, you watched that video for a damn good reason. And the answer is, no, you're not alone. And yes, there is hope out there. So don't you ever forget that, okay? Nathan, thank you so much. And you, you out there. The opportunity. Thank you. Look after yourself. Bye. <laughs> I am. Um...